what are the standard diagnostic criteria that we currently use? Um, so with diagnosing keratoconus, there are a few different areas that we look at diagnostically, one being with topography. We want to see um, what the corneal uh, curvature average looks like. And especially if that steep corneal curvature is greater than like 47 diopters, um, we are looking for the difference between the superior and inferior bow ties or the semi-meridians. And if there is a significant difference of maybe greater than one and a half diopters of corneal astigmatism, that certainly is gonna be more suspicious. Um, and then that, that value value between the inferior to the superior value, if that ratio is great, that difference is greater than 1.4 diopters on the axial map. And then of course, lastly, as Bill mentioned earlier, that difference map is um, a clear differentiator in being able to kind of assess the subtle changes that can occur over time. Because sometimes you wonder, is this just, um, you know, the difference just based because it was, you know, just the tear film or just the timing of the diagnostic rather than is this a true change in the curvature of this patient's cornea? We hear this a lot, but what is the IS keratometry value? Yeah, so the IS uh, value is looking at five spots superior to the center and it's a certain distance, I think it's three millimeters. And then you look at it somewhere five spots below the center. Um, and it's a way to you look at the average numbers of both sides and then add them up and, and compare the two, two values. So it's not looking just at a single point, but at multiple spots, superior versus inferior. And it's certainly a useful criteria, but we've obviously learned that there's also more data that can be learned from a tomography. So that's why most surgeons are moving to tomography um, to help diagnose patients better. Um, on my end, I've been using the Pentacam and there's Galilei and Pentacam, two great diagnostic technologies. And within that, they have a bad score, um, the named after Dr. Blenden and Ambrosio that really does a good job at looking at the global changes in the shape of the cornea, the anterior and posterior surfaces. And the bad score seems to be very helpful in, uh, in putting patients in different criteria, whether they're normal, at risk, or at high risk for keratoconus. One of the things about using these, these scores on, on topography and tomography is that sometimes you miss that with diseases like pellucid marginal degener degeneration. So um, what do you look for in these patients that you might not pick up on, on automated testing? Bill, how would you so respond the, to that? So the, yeah, so those patients, if you're looking at the um, tomography, you'll see, or even tomography, you'll see that there's this um, lobster claw pattern and it also the steeping is very far inferior. So it might miss in that IS ratio. It may not even be visible, but you have to just look at the global uh, cornea and you'll see, start to see this inferior steepening um, for pellucid marginal degeneration. So it's, it's not central, it's very far peripheral. And that's why sometimes it's picked up later. I'm sure you've all seen that pellucid also tends to manifest not in kids as much, but more in middle-aged patients. There are a number of patients that have sort of a central nipple cone, if you will, and, and those patients, uh, uh, you know, inferior, superior doesn't work too well, but pellucid is pretty straightforward to diagnose usually, but it's those central cones sometimes that can confuse you, but they'll usually have steepening and 
uh, you know, particularly posterior and anterior steepening and, and, uh, and a classical pattern also on topography, but IS won't help you there. Yeah, th those patients can be extremely um, challenging that sometimes they do not have skew deviation. It looks like this regular bow tie cylinder, but it's a truncated uh, cylinder so that the bow tie looks shortened. And, th and that's kind of yeah. the clue that you have that you're dealing with a uh, central nipple uh, truncated cone. Let's talk about uh, more about diagnosing keratoconus. Um, and that is looking at corneal tomography. Uh, Terry, you want to take this? Sure. I mean, this has obviously changed the game for, for a lot of us in terms of getting at that goal of diagnosing keratoconus early. You know, we only paid attention to the anterior surface curvature of the cornea, uh, which is why, you know, um, all these uh, types of publications have been uh, revised now to include uh, that posterior corneal uh, curvature. So, you know, we used to use that Amsler Krumai uh, classification system, and that was just recently revised uh, to, to include posterior corneal changes. So tomography has enabled us to, to do that. And, and Bill was talking about, you know, whether it's Scheinflug imaging with the Pentacam or the Galilei device, we now have the ability to, to not only look at the anterior uh, elevation, but also the posture elevation. And so some criteria, as you can see here, it also gives you uh, a nice uh, broad pachymetry map. So, map. so you want to look at the thinnest, thinnest pachymetry point, less than 500 microns, an anterior elevation that's greater than that 10 to 15 micron, uh, micron range, and the posture elevation greater than the 15 to 20 micron range. Uh, the Bell and Ambrosia uh, scale is very helpful, and I, I like using that. It's a nice visual tool that you can can see, and it's very nicely graded. You know, if you have that yellow to red, it's a warning sign. And then the percent uh, percentage thickness uh, increase that you can see here with that Bell and Ambrosia scale, I think it's extremely helpful. There are a lot of different tools that we have um, for diagnosing keratoconus. Uh, Netta. Um, do you use uh, OCT, wafer aberrometry, or biomechanics in your practice? I do. The, we talked about the OCT. That's a, a really nice uh, diagnostic that only adds to the information we have and, and, and further either um, uh, uh, you know, gives us more confidence about proceeding with refractive surgery in some of these patients, or it uh, gives us more caution, obviously. And we talked about how with the OCT, you can uh, have this pattern of pachymetry impact pattern of corneal thickness. And if the thinnest part of the cornea is eccentric to the central two to three millimeters, it is most definitely suspicious, and especially if it correlates with the area of steepening on corneal topography. Um, and the same is with uh, epithelial mapping. Sometimes uh, the thinnest part of the cornea is still within that central area, but there may be an area of abnormal um, corneal topography steepening and an and epithelial um, uh, pattern or OCT of the epithelial thickness can help, again, point at um, uh, you know, suspicion around, um, around the area of the cone because the topography can be hidden or fooled uh, into having a more smooth pattern if the epithelium has thickened over, over the cone. Um, and you know, as far as wavefront aberrometry, I think it's, it's helpful. It's, it's you know, added information and corneal biomechanics I have worked with that in, in an academic setting for research purposes, but I have not used it clinically in my practice. And I think these all kind of point at our need for 
a, a, you know, more accurate, more definitive uh, diagnostic tools to really give us confidence to make, uh, make the diagnosis or, or, or rule out the diagnosis and, and multiple prongs of options here, none that give us enough confidence to really um, uh, forge ahead uh, without trepidation. Oh, I just want to mention that, is that I'm not sure if anyone's using the ARC scan. That's another technology that measures epithelial thickness, and Dan Reinstein popularized that to show that it's a helpful, another tool to measure, look at epithelial thickness maps for risk for keratoconus. Nope. Um, and then I'm not sure if anyone's also using, also using the Corvus or Aura for corneal biomechanics, because that can also give some nice information on the strength of the cornea um, as a predictive factor for early keratoconus. And high coma too, if you do a wafering analysis, uh, high coma over 0 0.5, 0 0.6 is a red flag. Right, so we have a lot of diagnostic tools in our toolbox that we can use to diagnose keratoconus, but I think uh, the most important aspect still remains corneal topography and corneal tomography. And I think that's where uh, most of us spend most of our time. Um, as corneal specialists, do you think you can diagnose keratoconus effectively with just topography without having corneal pachymetry mapping? Or do you really need to have pachymetry mapping today to be um, adequate at diagnosing keratoconus? Well, it all depends on what point in that spectrum of disease the patient is in. I think in the in moderately advanced um, uh, cases, as I mentioned, even from the history of refractive, progressive refractive change, you can make that diagnosis. Uh, so I think in moderately advanced topography is sufficient. But uh, you know, as we push to want to detect earlier and earlier cases or at risk corneas, uh, then uh, tomography, uh, you know, OCT, and and the more advanced diagnostics will will help find those cases earlier. We've looked at a lot of uh, studies that can be do, used to diagnose keratoconus. Uh, where does genetic testing play a role? We understand with like the dystrophies, right? So there's stromal dystrophies and it's, and it's monogenic, monogenic. So it's like one gene, the TGF beta one. Um, there are, and that's like, you know, a very easy one to understand. That one is directly linked and that's the main one. With keratoconus, there are numerous genes, so it's polygenic, um, that are associated very strongly with keratoconus, more, some more than others, particularly those genes that are linked to um, collagen specifically. So with genetic testing, there are a few different ones out there, but the Avigen does actually um, evaluate and look for a 75 gene panel that is more correlated um, and associated with keratoconus, as well as all the different variations. And what it does is looking at all of um, the particular genes that each specific patient may have that in its entirety does assess like a specific risk factor or their total risk assessment of being mild, medium, or high for having keratoconus. Um, it was, it's been validated in 600,000 patients, um, and particularly um, in Asia, Korea, Japan, um, and then in the US as well as, uh, as, well as Europe. 
uh, and you know the this information is helpful as one piece. It's unique, um, and it gives you information that is very inherent to the patient, separate from the environment. The the risk uh, score reference bar is kind of used to kind of look at all the genetic. Um, information that you have here. And as Liz mentioned, it's, it's really polygenic. It sort of analyzes all of the different uh, gene panels and then comes up with a risk score, which I think is going to be very helpful and additive to the other diagnostic testing that we're currently using. We asked this before, and, and I think we answered it, but uh, Dick said that uh, patients with no corneal findings can go on to develop keratoconus. We, we all know that. Um, Ashley, um, how accurate are traditional and advanced technologies for identifying coronary refractive surgery candidates who may be at risk? I think what's so interesting about this disease is that we don't fully understand you know, exactly what specific risk factors are, are attributing to this. There are multiple. Um, and so because of that, we need multiple different modalities for investigation to establish and to diagnose keratoconus. Um, so, you know, having a multitude of different diagnostic modalities at our fingertips is extremely important, you know, from topography, tomography, which is, you know, extremely important in early cases, as Netta had mentioned earlier. Um, looking at things like corneal biomechanic testing, maybe even epithelial mapping, some of the newer technologies. And the genetic testing, I think, really fits in nicely into that because we know that that's a component. We didn't have a way of understanding that before, either than just asking about family history, which again, some patients might not know or completely understand themselves. And so being able to be given then a risk score based on that genetic information, I think is just another thing that you can add to your armamentarium. We see many patients who come in to us to see us and they tell us that they only want to have LASIK. They don't want to have PRK and they may be borderline in certain criteria, such as they may have completely normal topographies, but their corneas may be a little thin. A thin cornea, as Bill Trattler has pointed out, doesn't necessarily mean a patient's going to go on to develop keratoconus having genetic markers to aid us in deciding who can go on to LASIK and who should have PRK or who should have no surgery at all, I think will be very helpful. And, and you know, the, the, the maybe the 100,000 patients a year who are having PRK who maybe don't need to have it done. I agree with you 100%. I also like to think of the patients that have keratoconus in one eye and their second eye is normal. And we look at their complete normal eye, topography is normal, chronobiotic mechanics are normal, but we know that we would never perform LASIK on that patient because they're at high risk for developing keratoconus in the future. If we had a genetic test and could prove that genetically this eye was at risk, it would help us. And that makes us think about patients that look normal in both eyes. There's a percent that just haven't manifested keratoconus and that's where the genetic test will help us. What are the red flags that you would be concerned about that would lead you to recommend a genetic test to identify possible keratoconus. We certainly have great diagnostic tools and you know you can see a lot of the findings that are listed here in terms of things that make you, as Dick said, nervous about proceeding uh, with LASIK surgery. So whether that's, you know, typically it's that asymmetric bow tie or that bow tie that has a skewed axis. Certainly patients that have significant with the rule stigmatism 
But even against the rule of stigmatism, like when you see that crab claw that can not only come from pellucid, but it can also come from an inferior cone as well. Um, and if you have, you know, irregular stigmatism, that's always concerning. I usually worry more about high corneal curvature, like we said, a K that's uh, greater than 47 than I do uh, just simple high myopia. Uh, that corneal curvature concerns me more. And, you know, we certainly know that with time we've become uh, more selective in our patients. For instance, you know, we've moved from using a residual stromal bed of 250 to now most using 300 microns. And also as far as thin, thinner corneal pachymetry, some folks are not doing uh, LASIK on folks who have lower than a 500 packy. So, but, and, but we don't have, you know, uh, we don't have that perfect, uh, you know, allotment of diagnostic tests that are definitive, certainly. So adding a test like a genetic test here, I think, complements very well what we currently have, especially addressing that family member with keratoconus. So once we hear that or, or get that from the history, certainly uh, we're all worried uh, that this patient may be at high risk, but currently now there's no way to assess that. So I think ordering a genetic test in this scenario can be very complementary and additive in terms of making a decision, not only, uh, perhaps of whether or not a patient is a corneal refractive surgery candidate, but also help selecting, you know, whether they're a better candidate for perhaps a surface ablation procedure. I think our, our better diagnostic tools have led us to deploy more, more PRK, but I would also add uh, our fear of complications that may be unfounded sometimes may also be playing a role there as well. And that's where knowledge will be crucial to removing that fear that affects not only doctors, but patients as well. Not every refractive practice can have the slew of, or the litany of the diagnostic tests, including the biomechanics and corneal hysteresis and, and such, so, uh, or OCT corneal epithelial mapping. So to be able to have that extra bit of knowledge that genetic testing can offer can provide greater confidence in what the surgeon can um, recommend to the patient. And I'd also add that we see very commonly patients will come to our practice for consultation and they get told two different stories by two different doctors or two different centers. And the normal response by these patients is to go ahead and do nothing because they don't really have any criteria to be comfortable with. Adding genetic testing, I think will take those patients and give them a level of comfort when there's two different diagnostic concerns and will allow them to proceed with surgery where they otherwise would have been incapacitated by fear because of the concern that they were, they were listening to the wrong doctor. Let's talk about the military. Uh, the military does refractive surgery on very young patients. These are 18, 19, 20 year olds having refractive surgery. Those are the patients that I'm most concerned about um, who come in for surgery because you don't know what's going to happen to them. The 30-year-olds we see in private practice are, are a very different group of patients. Um, would you be more concerned about ectasia and be more likely to get genetic testing on a younger patient? No, absolutely, Eric. And I, I also think what it's going to do is, you know, um, help identify those patients who are going to be good candidates for, for collagen cross-linking. How does genetic testing 
allow you to be a better clinician and inform your patients with better surgical decisions. Yeah, I, you know, as we've mentioned already this evening, I think the most important thing is that it just allows us to have more information to provide to our patients that we maybe are suspicious about their, you know, previous diagnostics, about maybe their risk factors, family history, et cetera. Um, so I really think the genetic testing comes into play to one, increase our you know, ability to offer this, you know, vision changing procedure to patients who want this done in a safe way and to provide them more information about their risk of having some kind of complication. One quick thought, Eric, on genetic testing, and we know that, you know, it's being looked at in every field and, and, and it's controversial, but, you know, the, the time to do genetic testing is when it might change what you do, you know, and so, if, if it's not going to change what you do, then it's sort of an academic exercise. But if, if genetic testing might change what you do, then I think it can meaning, be meaningful and useful. And uh, again, on that subgroup of patients where it's going to change what you recommend, LASIK versus PRK or nothing versus LASIK or PRK, uh, then it's a meaningful test. When you think about it, the diagnostic tools that we've used thus far have all looked at the sequela of the disease, not the underlying cause. It's looked at this as, you know, this change in the corneal curvature, the, the sequela of the progressive disease. The missing link has been finding that underlying um, uh, risk factor being the genetic predilection of developing the disease. And, and I think this uh, additive tool, as, as everyone has mentioned here, will make us better refractive surgeons because after all, refractive surgery is an elective procedure. And uh, as I mentioned, and as everyone nodded their head, uh, I would never want to cause ectasia in a patient if I can help it. And if this can help me be a re better refractive surgeon by uh, doing a better job in risk stratification and possibly turning a patient away from corneal-based procedure and towards ICL, like Liz was mentioning, or nothing at all, uh, I would be a better surgeon uh, as a result. What are the future applications of genetic testing and ophthalmic practices, and how does this application of genetic testing influence your ability to perform corneal cross-linking, maybe on the sooner side? Dick, you mentioned, unless this knowledge allows you to act, um, it's really an academic exercise. Will genetic information influence you to do cross-linking sooner or later? Dick, well, right now we have to, you know, confirm the patient has progressive keratoconus in America to treat. So, so perhaps the one role genetic testing could play would be to help me decide how frequently to monitor a patient. So if I've got someone who, uh, who I'm screening for refractive surgery and they're making me nervous and then I do genetic testing and they come up with a high risk profile for keratoconus, that's maybe a patient I'm not just gonna, you know, say, go away, you don't have to be seen again. That's the patient I'm going to suggest, you know, why don't you come back in six months and we'll, you know, do another, you know, evaluation with tomography and, and topography and examination. I could see in the very near future if genetic testing uh, turns out to be, um, very important that having a positive genetic test with even the simple finding of any uh, corneal irregularity in a young patient would allow me 
to have insurance pay for surgery, I think this would be a very nice step to reducing the progression of cryotomics. It's just never made sense to me as a surgeon that I've got to wait for a patient to get worse before I can act. I kind of want to stop the disease as soon as I can. Furthermore, it really guides us as to, you know, do we cross-link now um, or do we send them for kind of therapeutic um, treatments for their vision with different kind of contact lenses or orthokeratology? Or, you know, what, what do we need to do to take care of them? Because unbeknownst to me, I didn't think about the fact that when we are using some of these therapeutic contact lenses, it masks the corneal curvature. So understanding what their genetic predisposition is will help us to better direct whether or not we need to do something on the front end before we can also take care of them and help them with their high astigmatism, progressive myopia um, on the medical refractive side of it. The majority of eye care professionals don't have topographies, but everyone will have access to genetic testing. And for some of these practices, it may be very reasonable to genetic test patients at risk and have those patients followed by a corneal specialist so that they can have a diagnosis made earlier rather than waiting for them to develop uh, overt disease. Yeah. yeah, this is a great, it's a great point. This is a, a test that has no capital cost and doesn't take any space in the clinic. So it's very helpful. Consensus finding number five. All panelists believe that corneal tomography is the most accurate diagnostic tool to detect keratoconus prior to loss of visual function. Consensus finding number six. All panelists recommend corneal tomography for all corneal refractive surgery candidates to help identify keratoconus suspects. Consensus finding number seven. On average, 11% of all corneal refractive surgery candidates are likely to be identified as keratoconus suspects preoperatively. 10 of 13 believe that more than 5% of all corneal refractive surgery candidates are likely to be identified as keratoconus suspects preoperatively. Consensus finding number eight. On average, 20% of corneal refractive surgery candidates have red flags or corneal concerns that would lead doctors to recommend a genetic test. Nine of 13 believe that at least 25% of corneal refractive surgery candidates have red flags or corneal concerns that would lead doctors to recommend a genetic test. Consensus finding number nine. On average, 94% of corneal refractive surgery candidates who are keratoconus suspects would receive a genetic test. 12 of 13 believe that all corneal refractive surgery candidates who are keratoconus suspects should receive a genetic test. 